When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Lee Lowenfish about his new book, Baseball's Endangered Species, Inside the Craft of Scouting by Those Who Lived It. This is Lee's third book. Lee, welcome to the show. Uh, fifth book, actually. Oh, I'm sorry. And I, I, I started with The Imperfect Diamond, which is the labor history of baseball. And, uh, and then I did uh, Tom Seavers, The Art of Pitching, a book with the baseball trainers and fitness, and then the, the Big Branch Ricky biography. And the outgrowth of that is the latest book on scouting because Ricky was the first one to really uh, organize a great scouting network, and uh, that's Baseball's Endangered Species. Right, and we will get into Branch Ricky for sure. So where did your appreciation of scouts come from? Well, with me, baseball's always been personal. I've never, never played uh, really hardball. I did once at a uh, art exhibit uh, stand up to uh, bat against Tom Seaver, and I, I got a foul tip off him. But that, that's uh, that's about the limit of my baseball playing. But but um, my my father was a dermatologist. Uh, was born and raised during in the middle of Manhattan, and two of his patients were umpires. Bill Stewart, who I never met, Bay Pinelli, who was last home plate uh, umpire. Assignment uh, Simon was Don Larson's perfect game, and uh, and and so baseball love was around my house. And then we fast forward. Uh, I'm back in New York after grad work and teaching in Wisconsin, Baltimore. And I start going to high school, college games, and I see a scout, and we introduce each other, and his name was Billy Blitzer. And uh, my father had another patient named Ida Blitzer. And I said, are you related to Ida Blitzer? He says, yeah, it's my grandmother. Are you related to Dr. Lowenfish? Well, that's my father. And that's how I started meeting scouts. Herb Stein was the his mentor, the man who signed Carew before uh, the draft and Frank Viola, Gene Larkin, and, and um, uh, after the draft. 
and they introduced me to others. And so this has been a, a dream fulfilled uh, to t- tell the story of Blitzer and Stein in one chapter in my book. And then the Ricky Scouts and the Art Stewarts, who uh, uh, was the first Royals great scout and previously the Yankee scout that signed Jim Bouton and Fritz Peterson and on and on. So uh, that that's the, the roundabout way of telling you, uh, Paul, how I came to this. Right. So, so when and how did scouting become a part of professional baseball? Well, it it took off really when Ricky mastered uh, the farm system or developed it to such a great extent that the Yankees, who um, missed the World Series to to uh, Connie Max A's uh, for three years in a row. 29, 30, 31, and the Yankees started to build a farm system, which actually was more economical than Ricky's. And so I would put those two developments, Ricky's farm system, and then the Yankees to, to uh, almost outdo them as, as the, the, the start of streamlined scouting. And, the, the, the detail on, 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 you know, Branch Ricky's role and all of this is great. I, there was, you said at one point in the book, I think that I, I think I have this card. I think at one point at the at the height, the Cardinals had thirty two minor league teams and over seven hundred players in their system. Is that right? Absolutely, and and that's part of the reason why Branch Rickey uh, was a controversial figure in baseball because he was cornering a lot of talent at least a possible uh, major league talent. And if not, he would hire them as coaches and minor league managers. And and the other teams, and especially Commissioner Landis, thought that was uh, blocking the, the path forward. And so uh, he went after the farm system. And it turns out the last scout uh, I write about in the book, Bill Enos was someone who was going to be uh, in the Cardinal farm system, but suddenly he wasn't. And we think, thanks to his daughter, Anne, who has collected and kept all his material, uh, this was the time, 37, 38, when Landis was on the warpath specifically against Ricky. And so he wound up going a roundabout way to the St. Louis Browns, the Orioles, uh, the pilots, Seattle pilots, and then where he became famous with the Red Sox. So it's it's uh, I have called baseball uh, America's repertory theater or soap opera, and that the the stories of many of these guys who traveled the the, the world in later years and in the country, uh, and uh, you know, many, you know, missing high school graduations, babies' births. And yet did it because they loved the game so much. And that's what baseball's endangered species gives honor to. I want to ask you a little bit about the research for this book, because, you know, I mean, kind of a theme. And I, and I, I think a lot of the kind of impetus for you writing this book is that scouts don't get a whole lot of attention. A very few, uh, most fans, even I think serious fans don't know the names of many scouts. I could give you, for example, I know one, I know, I knew prior to your book, I knew the name of one scout, Dick Roach. Uh, and I, I assume, you know why, because he found Derek Jeter. Um, and, and the Yankees have done a good job of kind of recognizing Groach. And when they've honored Jeter at times, they've bought, brought Groach into the fold, which I always thought was really nice. But 
How did you, given the kind of lack of coverage of these scouts, how did you go about compiling material on, on these various different scouts? Well, that, that's a very good question, Paul, because historically, uh, the scouts kept their mouths shut, the, especially in the days before the free agent draft in 1965, because uh, they, they wanted to hide players. Uh, not And uh, the stories are scouts climbing trees, so uh, uh, opponent scouts don't see they're scouting a player. Uh, but there was a lot of sport to it. In fact, Critchell, who um, uh, was the Yankee scout that f- found Gehrig and approved all the other scouts that came in all over the country as the Yankees built their farm system, Critchell, when he spoke to the press in his heyday, which was very rare, made it a point that scouts do not draw attention to themselves. They, they, uh, a- a- anyone who signed is an organizational sign. So that, that added to the, um, uh, to, to the problem. And then the, the cover boy for my book is Tom Greenway, who, uh, I, I tell people only half in jest that you win a copy of the book if you can identify Greenway on the co- cover because he's wearing a Dodger Jack, uh, uh, photo, uh, a, a, a uni at the time. And Jim Croyce, you know, one of the Sabre members who was earlier work was a big help to me, said this was actually a, a post photo because scouts were not taking pictures. But, but he did at the time work for the Dodgers and he signed Rex Barney, who became, uh, who never mastered control. The great line in Brooklyn about Rex Barney, who did pitch a no-hitter for the Brooklyn Dodgers, was if the strike zone were high and outside, he would have made the Hall of Fame. He wound up the Baltimore uh, Oriole uh, uh, PA announcer and became famous for give that fan a, a contract when a good foul ball was caught in the stands. But Greenway signed Barney. He also signed the pitcher who later became a very good coach uh, with the, perhaps the, great, the greatest name in baseball history, Calvin Coolidge, Julius Caesar, Tuscahoma, McLish, Cal McLish. And then, <laughs> so uh, it, it, I love these kind of challenges. You know, uh, when I got into the Branch Rickey biography uh, late last century and into early this century, I was very glad to find an owner a really key owner who no one really had heard of, about excepting somebody who was just drenched in Dodger history, John Lawrence Smith, who was the real rich guy in the Dodger ownership, uh, the Pfizer chemical millionaire who also was a very good chemist. And if he had lived, there's no doubt Walter O'Malley would have had a harder time getting rid of Branch Rickey. And um, so, I, you know, having found John L. Smith, I figured I, if I dug hard enough, talked to the scouts, went to old sporting newses and material, the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, I would find enough. And that's what happened. In fact, one of my favorite stories, Paul, is just up at, at uh, Cooperstown in, or the 1st of June talking about the movie Angels in the Outfield, and which the original, except no substitutes, uh, I found years earlier, I found on a remainder uh, uh, shelf in the Hall of Fame library, Red Murph's book, The Scout, 
uh, you know, looking for the best in baseball. And that got me started on what became a chapter on the man who, who signed Nolan Ryan and Koosman and recommended Jerry Grody and uh, Kenny Boswell. So uh, you just never know. I mean, I'm, I'm a conv- you probably heard the late of uh, Joaquin Andahar, the pitcher, who blew up in game seven of that 85 World Series that Don Dankinshire didn't help the Cardinals ball. <laughs> but they, they, they were still tied in game seven, you know. And, uh, I, I, Andahar said, the old, there's only one word you need to know about baseball, and that's you never know. And, <laughs> and so, you know to I those, like that. To those who listen today, uh, you never know. And if you have a passion, don't ever uh, give up on it, But because you never know what will happen. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, speaking to that, it seems like a lot of the scouts that you profile in the book, um, it, it they kind of fell into scouting in that a lot of them were guys who played ba- baseball at, a, at, a, at an advanced level. Um, maybe they, they never made it to the majors or had a cup of coffee, whatever it is. And they it, it seems like the common thread is – they were really smart baseball guys. Somebody in an organization recognized that and they had a love for the game and kind of fell into this scouting was kind of a natural progression or there was an opportunity or whatever it was. Have you come across many people who kind of dreamed of being a scout that, always, you know, growing up, they always wanted to be a scout or is it more the latter that they just kind of were baseball lifers that fell into it? Well, that's a very good question. I would just... Uh, modify your verbiage a little they they didn't fall into it they just knew they knew they wanted to uh, their life would not be full without some role in baseball and and most of the time it's true that the scouts uh weren't great players uh but they they knew enough about the game and maybe especially the failures in the game that they wanted to to take the the uh, pledge the the calling of 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 having either no family life or a uh, having to under having a wife and kids understand that daddy may be not home for Thanksgiving. And he may miss a party or two, but he loves him. And he just, this is his calling. And it's like going into the ministry or going into medicine, certainly in the early years of training. Uh, there's nothing, there's going to be nothing normal about your life in terms of nine to five. But on the other hand, they would, they would go that shit, if you pardon the expression, if they had to just go and click a time uh, machine uh, to uh, every day. And, and so, you know, once they got into Scott's scouting and got some mentorship and delivered some some players, you know, one of the great quotes in the book is from Johnny Knee, who was a Yankee scout who signed Bill Dickey. And made them forget all the other catchers. And Bill Dick, Bill Dickey's reward later was to train Yogi Berra to be a good catcher. And John, Johnny Knee's advice was to scouts: May all your mistakes be Triple A, because you know the you know the, you know this is why the game in so many levels playing, scouting, uh, coaching it, it's designed to beat you up, and how you uh, how you deal with it. I mean, there's no other sport 
where you can can strike a guy out, the catcher misses the ball, or you can throw a great pitch and the ball drops in between three fielders, or you hit a ball that goes 402 feet and, and goes foul by, by one inch. I mean, how you bounce back from that is, is the story of success in baseball. And not many players, not many scouts can master that. But it is the it is the thing that keeps us talking about, and probably will, uh, as long as we're on the earth. Yeah, I mean, you know, there there is so much. I don't want to say failure, but you know, it it is such a struggle to succeed in baseball. Um, and I wonder how do scouts because most of the players you sign don't make it to, to the big leagues. How, how do scouts define success? You know, go ahead. You know, very good question. And, you know, while the word failure is uh, against the American grain, I mean, I, I think uh, one of the scouts, uh, and, and there are now sports psychologists all over the place with every organization, the great scouts – that that it was all about makeup. I mean, it, and and makeup is how you deal with the vagaries of the game, and uh, the uh, and and that's why robotic scouting, uh, uh, the um, perfect game uh, scouting, uh, now leagues as well as uh, tournaments in October, they they you can't judge makeup by. A, a couple of innings of an all-star game, which is what a lot of these uh, 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 these perfect game uh, uh, weekends are about. And the old scouts and even the, the younger scouts uh, in, in this age of uh, analytics that has to be dealt with, it has to be understood but neutralized, they, they, they have to look at how the whole, the whole uh, body of work and the whole – uh, how the mentality of the player works. You know, one of my favorite quotes in the Ricky book was from Dick Grote, who just passed away. And, and he said that he was an All-American basketball player and even a pro for a while until Branch Ricky said, you can't, we're afraid of injury and you got to choose your master. It's got to be baseball or basketball. And Grote told me that basketball was fun. You know, you can hit a shot, you can miss a shot, then get a rebound or a steal. Baseball does things to the coconut. And, and again, it's the nature of the game. And, you know, you, if you really screw up with the bases loaded, uh, you have to wait eight more batters to, to, to redeem yourself. You just have to hope you're doing something good on the defense in, 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 the, in the interim. And just as an example, as we talk here early in June, wonderful story on Sunday, uh, Josh Lester uh, with the Tigers uh, for five at-bats, no hits. I saw him in spring training in Sarasota. He looked like he could help the team. He comes up on Sunday in San Francisco it's a basis clearing double or a single that all runs score on an error. Last night in Milwaukee, he comes up with the bases loaded as a pinch hitter. Hits a screaming foul ball, you know, misses a home run by a foot, and then he strikes out. And the Orioles lose the game four to three. Uh, today is another day. That's another great thing I've learned from scouts and coaches that tomorrow's your best friend, especially in baseball's long season. But 
how do you handle this? I mean, how do you handle the, you know, the, the cliche is not too high, not too low. Well, you know, <laughs> easier said than done. Not only that, but life would be pretty dull if it were just gray, you know. Right, right. But it's it's the other wonderful line I heard from basketball, but it applies to any competitive sport about humility, uh, which Moneyball people have uh, don't have. I mean, uh, Michael Lewis uh, uh, reluctantly admitted that Moneyball would have been a better book if he had done a little bit more with Tim Hudson, Mark Mulder, and Barry Zito. And maybe he didn't, I would add, and, you know, Scott Hatterberg, come on, you know. But uh, the, the wonderful, you uh, humble line is, peacock today, feather duster tomorrow. So. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, I love that, you know, some of the most enjoyable stuff for me in the book is, is the language, the lingo of scouting, you know, and you could say that about baseball in general, but scouts, it seems, have their own, even their own lingo. And sometimes it was more general quotes. Sometimes it was specific quotes. In fact, you, you kind of started off the book with one that I loved where I, it was Greg Moorhart. Is that right? The scout who signed Mike Trout was saying, I look for dogs who play checkers, which I thought was just a, a, an incredible quote and really summed up you know the, the the business do you have a kind of favorite quote or expression from the scouting world well you know i give i dedicate the book first to any to every scout who wrote down what a player could do not what he couldn't do because that you know i mean you know ricky had a great line too about if a if he makes a great play once he can make it again and the other dedicatee is is um uh, Kevin Corain, who whose dollar sign and the muscle, which is Branch Rickey's phrase, came out uh, almost a half century ago and inspired me to do mine. I mean, you know, one scout wrote about a, a, a runner. In fact, I think it was a Yale football player who never made it as a baseball player. Says, "Looks like Tarzan, runs like Jane." Now, you know, <laughs> you know that's in the age of. Uh, of uh, I you know the the fully sexist age, and I give uh, uh, the commissioner uh, some props for trying to diversify the sport these days. And I do close the book with the with the, tra- the tragic and yet moving story of uh, Kelly Rodman, who was very vital as a Yankee scout uh, for saying Anthony Volpe is going to be a major leaguer. She died of brain cancer at the age of 44. And there's a, is a, uh, every year then this year it'll be at the, at the Worcester polar book park in Massachusetts, where, uh, a, uh, a high school and college, uh, uh, training program that will have their all-star game at, at a field. And it'll be the Kelly Rodman Memorial classic because to try to bring good people and good players to the game, uh, you need every, everyone who wants to pay the price of, uh, of the long travel. And, and the fact as you've pointed out many times, Paul, that most of the people won't make it, but how you, you go through, this this trial and even if you don't get a major league uh, a career you your life wouldn't have been complete if you didn't give it uh, a, a shot and that's why i think baseball is so important in the history of our, our country and and that's why i hope it, it comes back 
to the predominance that it once had, although there's so many things with the other sports and mass culture these days that are, are, uh, are forces against that. Yeah. Um, you, you talked about, you mentioned Johnny Nee before who, who signed Bill Dickey. And um, uh, in the book, you talk about how Nee said he, he would quit scouting if Dickey didn't make it. He was that sure. And, that, um, and that's what teams are looking for. That teams or the great scouts have always had their, uh, the courage of their convictions. And this is where the over-reliance on, on video and, and what the radar gun is telling you uh, is is why so many people that are ballyhoo just don't make it because I mean just think of what kind of challenge it is to look at a kid that's eighteen and say uh, and he's dominating younger uh, or just inferior uh, uh, competition. What is he going to be like when he uh, when he comes up every day after day? against pitchers and hit and, and hitters who may be even better. And while we cross fingers as Oriole fans that your Texas native uh, Grayson Rodriguez will emerge, but he's down, you know, he's down dominating AAA again because he's blown up every game at the major league level. And so we'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I had a little, uh, I'm sure your listeners know, I mean, he's from the, I think the town where, LBJ went to school, Naga, Dodgers, Texas. Okay, yeah. But he moved outside the, the, outside of Dallas I, to, for better competition in high school. But when I saw something off season where he was throwing a baseball across a lake to the plaudits of, of the jock sniffers in the area, I said to myself, oh, no, 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 please. I didn't see what I saw because you know, I, I don't – uh, I don't call myself a punted or a a, a, a a scout myself, but I can say as an absolute truth, when about 10 years ago, Dylan Bundy, who was the Grayson Rodriguez of his day, number one pick of the Orioles, fourth in the country, when I saw his weight program, you know, lifting weights with tires, yeah, that his father, an auto mechanic, was, you know, supervising, I said to myself, this guy's arm is going to, going to blow out, which indeed happened. He had a fairly successful, but not a dominant career. And the last I looked, he was with the Mets triple A team, which tells you where, where the Mets are going right now, you know, but so it's a, it's the hardest sport it is to master. It's the hardest sport to analyze, but that's where the challenge comes. And the more you rely or bring in, people who are strong in their opinions and know what they're talking about, but are humble too, the better teams will be. And, um, and we'll see, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I want to, I want to talk a little bit about the art of scouting. I'm fascinated by this. You, you mentioned Paul Critchell before, and uh, you talk about in the book, how he basically had an epiphany when he heard the sound of, of the ball coming off Lou Gehrig's bat. And that's fascinating to me, just the sound. It, it, it brought me back. I, I Years ago, I read a book about Buck O'Neill. And Buck O'Neill said that there were three times. I'll never forget this because I found it fascinating. He was in the, I think he was like heading towards the dugout years ago and he heard a sound. And he turned around because he'd only heard that sound twice before with Babe Ruth and Josh, Josh Gibson. 
And this third time he heard the sound, it was Bo Jackson. And he said he'd been waiting his whole life to hear that sound again. Uh, is that a common thing where, where something as kind of um, abstract as that, just a, you know, the sound or, or a certain image or something like that can drive a scout? Certainly the older ones. And if they're teaching or the younger ones are looking for advice, absolutely, Paul. Uh, and, it's, and it works with pitching, too. I mean, it's like you uh, like Red Murph uh, hearing Nolan Ryan sick. He six feet, one hundred and forty pounds. His high school coach thought he wasn't even the best pitcher on his team. But you know, Murph, who had a really fascinating backstory, because he was, if not the oldest pitcher to make it to his his major league debut, he, he was one of the oldest for the Milwaukee Braves in '56. And he was released or he was sent to the minors forever the next year. So he didn't get a World Series uh, ring from playing. But his teammates did give him one because they knew they knew he was uh, had a baseball head. And 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 he himself, if he had started earlier, you know, he might have had more of a career. But he he knew uh, what that sound was. And, and he never ceased advocating for Ryan almost to the point where uh, the other scouts and the front offices of the Mets were beginning to laugh at him, you know, but, but like he said that he, um, when he saw Ryan pitch in high school, he said that that's a better arm now, a better fastball than Turk Farrell, who he saw and Jim Maloney, you know, scouting the major leaguers at the same time. And, and, and these stories, you, uh, Branch Rickey had that feeling when George Sisler came to pitch against the varsity when he was a freshman at the University of Michigan. And, and uh, fast forward to one of uh, Rickey's mentees who I discuss in the book, Gene Bennett, Don Gullett in junior high school across the river in Kentucky from Cincinnati. He saw him striking out high school and college players in junior high. So yes, they're they're always they're always looking for that, and and you know Bo Jackson and Art Stewart's uh, mentoring and giving praise to Ken Gonzalez, the scout that that knew Bo Jackson's mother, who worked at at the, in hotels uh, in Alabama, and that's how Bo uh, ultimately wound up. Uh, being drafted and signed by the Royals. And I, I, I think every scout who saw him play said if he had not gone back to football, uh, he might have set a lot of records in baseball. Yeah. <clears throat> Do you find that most scouts – well, let me back up for a second. I, I, the, one of the things that's fascinating, I, I can't remember the scout's name, but there was a scout in the book who insisted that – he believed he had to see a hitter hit from eight different angles. And he looked at him. The prophet of the sandlots. Right. Do you you find, are most scouts, they may have their different ways of going about it, but are most scouts looking for the same qualities in a ball player? For example, you talk in the book at, you know, how some look for quick hands and quick feet basically, but are are most scouts in general looking for the same things or does that vary? No, again, very good questions, Paul. They're looking for tools. And and again, it was Ricky who kind of coined the, those five tools that uh, a, 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 I guess if you have all five tools as a hitter, you'll be a Hall of Famer. And that's the ability to run, to feel, to throw, to hit, and to hit with power. Now, hitting with power is the, the, the latest to come. 
And like Don Mattingly, for instance, uh, his power came when he was a major leaguer. But he had the stroke and he had the, the will to win that was so that, – that they're always looking for too. And as one of the scouts say, you know, the, the way you scout a player is when, from the moment they leave the bus – of course, nowadays you you know they're all you all got headphones or the the buds, but you you want to see how they interact. A lot of the scouts, and because I'm a big makeup guy, because the tools now, if you have one tool, you may get signed. Uh, but the makeup, how you react to the failure, how you get along with your your teammates. I mean that's. And I had a talk with a with a fellow who I met through George Vesey, uh, uh, one of the great sports writers of our time, who's still with us. And 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 um, his friend, my friend now Jerry, was talking about. He came up in the Braves organization. Pat played with Paul Snyder, who um, never got out of Double A, in part because he wore glasses, and in part because he developed a bad back. So he became the scouting director of the and of the Braves. And oftentimes just an area scout and beloved because he was there. He learned and, and his assistant, Bill Lo, uh, Lucas, who was actually had a higher rank, but they, the rank didn't matter. Uh, they were looking for tools and they, they were looking. They knew how to deflate or control, neutralize Ted Turner. And unfortunately, Lucas died very young, but Snyder picked it up. And 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 look at the people that the Braves signed finally, and uh, uh, and one of the scouts who had a, a more varied career with other organizations, Tony uh, uh, Demacio, was one of my great sources for the book. He he talked uh, when he started his career, a guy from Pennsylvania who goes into New England and signs Tom Glavin, who had a uh, a, a job. I had a, a scholarship in hockey awaiting him, uh, as well as college baseball, and and, and he had to a figure out Glavin's uh, desire to put what what he wanted to play, and two to keep the Braves' interest in Glavin si- a little bit on on the back burner, because the moment the Braves were interested in the the uh, the Red Sox would go after Glavin, but when they saw that Glavin wanted to play baseball and that he talked to the scouts about how long he might be in the minors, you know, where would he play warm weather, cold weather. They knew the guy had the mentality to rise pretty quickly. And by contrast, when the scouts met Matt Harvey, you know, some years later and the father did all the talking, they had red flags went up about Matt Harvey, who wound up becoming the anti-Derek Jeter in New York. You know, he could not keep his name out of the paper dating another's model and and tried to make a comeback and, and actually help the Orioles with his experience last year. And now I think he's he's retired. So it, it, it's such a uh, it's such an art and a, and a craft to to make the right uh, uh, choices, you know, realizing that that most of them aren't going to make it. But, you know, heaven help those who don't look at the makeup issues and, and, and don't analyze the tools correctly because they're, they're looking for those who can, can have a good stroke and, uh, and can keep the stroke uh, 
the um, uh, against all kinds of pitching. And believe me, that that takes a lot of experience. And it, and I, I say in a sport that's that failure surrounds uh, that uh, if you don't have that eyes and ears uh, ability, uh, all the new algorithms in the world are not going to make the right the right choices. And I, and that to me is one of the absolutes. And that's why I've done, tried to give honor in the book to, to those who, who really did succeed in, in a, in a sport where it's so hard to succeed. In 1965, Major League Baseball introduced the draft system. How did that change or affect scouting? That was the sea change. And, um, uh, and I got to know Rick Reichardt a little when he got into the College Baseball Hall of Fame for work at Wisconsin. Uh, you know, I, I'm a Wisconsin PhD in American history, and I, I, I follow. Uh, they're the only. You know, life is more complicated than I want it to be, Paul. Wisconsin, only Big Ten team that does not have baseball. They, oh wow! It, I didn't realize that. Oh, it, it's it's it's. Thick. I went to I went to Michigan, by the way. So I'm a Big Ten guy. Well, I, well, yeah. I listen. I that's. Uh, um, I. That's good. That that's a friendly rivalry. Like I, I, I mean, I I went to Columbia, whose baseball team has been great these last two decades. They collapsed the end of this year, and and Penn. Penn almost made the sub super regional. They they had the inside track, but they couldn't beat Southern Mississippi twice, and so they're out. Uh, and but the um, the thing about Reichardt, who now is moved uh, with a lot of his family, is one of nine kids, and and the oldest. Uh, and and well, you know what's interesting? Not every scout by any means, but I some scouts like to sign the youngest uh, in a family. Because they get beaten up by the older brothers, and ultimately they emerge. You know, I can't, I'm not saying Riker, you know, didn't become the superstar he was supposed to be because he was the oldest. But but he had a kidney uh, an injury that never really healed. Uh, healed. But when he came out, uh, he was. Uh, it was such a hot topic in 1964 that NBC actually did a, a four-part special on the courting of Rick Reichardt. And uh, Bob Wolf, uh, the veteran sports uh, uh, caster who, who lived to be in his 90s, and very sadly, his son, Rick, who was a book publisher as well as a sports psychologist, passed away suddenly uh, last month. And, and so, you know, the, we hope the Wolf tradition will leave on. In the Wolf... 1964 uh, uh, documentary they had they show it was on TV they show uh, Reichardt being wooed by Gene Autry and they go he's got he's going to a, a, a party for ship of fools and Lee Marvin comes up to him and says to Rick on camera he says Rick get all you want out of him <laughs> result uh, though the Yankees wooed him, wooed him and the Red Sox and the White Sox, uh, uh, Autry's Angels, trying to, to compete with the Dodgers in the other league, signed him for a $205,000 bonus, which was by far the largest bonus ever. And uh, the next year, the free agent draft was passed. And uh, the hardly a scout really believed in it because they loved – 
going on the road by themselves and and wooing the family. Uh, I tell the story in this chapter about how uh, uh, Lou Magulo, who wound up signing both uh, uh, Tony Kubek later, Lou Magulo is in Norm Seaburn's house. And Norm Seaburn was a very good basketball player at what is today Missouri State. And uh, and uh, they don't like the bonus that's being offered. And uh, this is long before free agency and the arrival of Marvin Miller and company. And there's an impasse. Uh, uh, it's 30000 versus 25000 All of a sudden, Mrs. Seaburn comes out of the kitchen and, com- and is very apologetic. My stove is not working, and I wanted to give you my homemade cake, and I, I don't have it. So Lou, the scout, says, Mrs. Seaburn, we're going to put in a new stove for, for this contract. And that's how Norm Seaburn became a Yankee in the midfield. <laughs> and so yeah. the, that was out the window. And that was, so now the, the scouts, uh, and, and, you know, this is the fallacy of drafting, accepting it's a media event now in baseball as well as, of course, football and basketball. But if it's supposed to be enhanced um, uh, competitive balance, only in the first for the first pick is it enhancing competitive balance because after the first pick, which the Orioles use for Atlee Rushman, which is paying off right now, but after that first pick, the the worst team is always picking after the best team. So, uh, but the fact is, the scouts had that was the new situation. They didn't like it, but they they had to live with it, and. Um, the uh, and and uh, uh, it now is uh, as a cost cutting uh, effect, and that was really the the big ownership uh, push for pulling in the draft, and and it took t- Scott Boris and Andy Bennis twenty years later to get a bonus more than two hundred and five thousand. Yeah, you know. So um, now we're dealing with monopoly money and you know what and it's uh it's something we have to be concerned about but i i never want these stories to be forgotten and that's that's why i wrote the new book yeah and then in in 1975 major league baseball created the the scouting bureau how did that work and how did that affect the the industry well interestingly enough a lot of the national league teams the good ones that had good scouting um, uh, divisions didn't join the Bureau. But again, it was an example of how they were trying to cut the meager scout sal- salaries by putting a lot of, of um, uh, the uh, uh, all the names into the Scouting Bureau, which initially started in Southern California, ultimately was moved to New York, and a few years ago was was disbanded too. You know, so you know what 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 happened really is it got good experience for some scouts who joined the, the bureau, specifically Billy Blitzer, who wound up being with the Cubs after getting experience with the scouting bureau. But in terms there, in terms of equalizing talent it really didn't happen because you have good organizations and bad organizations good organizations win the ones who think you can just throw money at players uh lose 
you know, and I think that's again, almost an iron rule. Um, and, uh, you know, which is why it's sort of ha- always hard to handicap baseball's future because, uh, there are always bad teams and there are, there are always good teams. And um, I think I have cause for concern that they used to say that in the early years of free agency, new teams got into the World Series all the time. Now, you know, last year there were five teams, there were four teams that lost almost 100, over 100, 100 games and, and five uh, lost more than 97. And four teams won more than a hundred. Now this year, because of the balanced schedule, there may not be as many teams winning a hundred, but it sure looks like there'll be a lot of teams that don't have any hope. And here we are in early June. That is not a good situation. And um, and I don't um, I, in a, in a, a competitive market now where other sports, both spectator and participant, are growing. I. I I, I don't think that's a good sign, but uh, uh, but <laughs> I still say that the more scouts who know what they're doing uh, is the key uh, to any successful organization. And um, uh, but in, in the history of baseball, there's always been haves and have not. And so uh, I can't say that situation will change for the better. Yeah. Um, one other one other change, I guess, in, in the makeup of baseball, and I would think scouting I want to ask you about is, you know, the past few decades, uh, the, uh, the percentage of Latin American players in the game has increased significantly. And I wonder, how, has that changed the scouting business at all? Well, again, the good teams will mine the Latin American uh, markets. And, uh, and so definitely... But and but you know the Blue Jays' success and and, and the Royals' success, uh, uh, those two teams were probably the most successful new franchises, and they they built on uh, on getting that market. I mean, Pat Gillick, when he took over the Blue Jays in the late seventies, before you know it, you've got uh, they've they've they find Tony Fernandez and Damaso Garcia. Both of them sadly gone. They, uh, you know, neither one lived to be sixty, and then they pick up Jorge Bell, George Bell from the uh, from the Phillies, uh, who would uh, from the Dominican Republic and Venezuela. Uh, Freddie Garcia uh, uh, later, uh, later with the Astros and and Seattle. So you no, know, it's very it's very important. Uh, uh, and and you know, the Orioles are beginning to see some of that that fruit too. So no, it, it's a very very important component because uh, a few years ago, I think that M- Martinez was the most common name of all the names where it might have once been Jones and Smith. Now it may not be Martinez, but it's it's some name with a with that kind of, of flavor. And 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 you look at the. Uh, the, the roster of the Orioles, you know, they have two Dominican summer league teams and it's hard to find an Anglo name, among, you know, among them, you know, so that's, it is extremely important and, and, and especially Dominican and Venezuela. You, you, you know, you, you advocate in the book for, obviously the whole book is an ode to scouts and, and, you know, you advocate for them getting greater recognition. Do you think, there will come a time where scouts are inducted into the Hall of Fame. I hope so. I mean, I, 
I, uh, I begin the book with, with Bertie Tabbitt's dream, as I call it. I mean, Bert, Bertie Tabbitt's was just a very colorful guy I got to meet once. And, uh, and he wound up a scout for many teams, including the Met, the Yankees and the Mets. Steinbrenner made a reference to, uh, Birdie being a little bit uh, old, and that that was enough for the proud former major league catcher to say, "Well, you can take a hike." And next thing you know, he was with the Mets, you know, and so he pushed for it when he was on the on the veterans committee. But there was so much backbiting on that committee as to who would get in, and uh, among you know the players that uh, that that never even really came to a vote. But certainly, uh, my vote if I had one would be for Greenway who's on my cover and Paul Critchell and, and Charlie Barron and pop Kulchner who, who brought all that talent into the 732 uh, players that, 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 that the Ricky system had in St. Louis at it's a, at it's high point. And while he didn't live in to be in, he was no longer working for the pirates when they won the world series in 60. I mean, it was his people that signed, you know, Clemente and Mazeroski and plucked face out of the Dodger organization. Skinner, you know, that, that, that was a Ricky production. And, um, so it, it's, um, uh, all roads, you know, lead, uh, lead back to, uh, to the, the man I called the ferocious gentleman. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, great nickname. You- um, all right, Lee, I'll get you, I'll get you out of here with one last question I'd like to ask all my guests. Um, first, once again, Lee's book is called Baseball's Endangered Species, Inside the Craft of Scouting by Those Who Lived It. It's a great book. I mean, it's, I think you could tell by listening to Lee, his, his knowledge uh, of the history of the game and scouting is, is immense. And uh, there are just so many great stories in there. I love, you touched a little bit how scouts used to try and hide players. I love that stuff. And um it's just chock full of interesting little tidbits and nuggets. And I, I, I have one other that just came to mind when uh, that, that George Brett and Mike Schmidt were picked back to back, which I found fascinating. And it's not like, it's not like they were the first two picks in the draft. It was in the second round, but they have to be picked back to back. Um, there's just so much, so many fascinating little tidbits like that. So I, I highly, highly recommend Lee's book. Um, Lee, my final question for you. I asked this to all my guests. What is your all-time favorite sports book? Oh boy, that, that's really that's really a hard one. Uh, I, um, well, actually, I, I I think Dollar Sign and the Muscle. I mean, Kevin Corain, who's still teaching University of Delaware, and uh, he's uh, 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 that book came out in '84. Uh, Baseball Prospectus did a new edition in 2013, and uh, I, I think uh, Paul, Paul, uh, David Mariners described that book as delicious, and 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 that's 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 great tribute. And uh, uh, yeah, you can't argue with Dave Mariners. And and of course the the Roger Angel anthologies um, are uh, always. Uh, I'm one of those people. I, I when I did a radio show myself on WBAI Pacifica in the in the 1980s. And uh, I had him on on occasion, and uh, yeah, he was really special. And uh, I guess Five Seasons has his uh, chapter on Ray Scarborough, who was an Oriole scout and and a pitcher for the both the Red Sox and I think the Senators and others. So yeah, I think when you go to the uh, 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 
Kevin Corain and Roger Angel, you're in, you're, you're, you will have a lifetime love for this, for that, for this uh, particular craft and the game itself. All right, I'm gonna have to check out that book for sure. And I, and I wish the Longhorns uh, good luck uh, at Stanford in the uh, in the Super Regional this weekend. All right, thank you. Yeah, people down here are excited about that.